Today on episode number 166 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dr. Bruce Hoskins and I attempt to model how to have healing conversations about racial identity. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Dr. Bruce Hoskins, is a professor of sociology at Miracosta Community College. He's an Oceanside, California native. Like the students he teaches, his educational journey started at a community college. After earning a bachelor's degree in ethnic studies, he discovered his passion for the subject and for teaching. This led him to earn a PhD in sociology with an emphasis on race and ethnic relations and multiracial identity formation from the University of Southern California. Beyond teaching, Dr. Hoskins continues to research multiracial identity formation, and in the fall of 2011, he published the book Asian American Racial Realities in Black and White. His text examines how people of Asian, white, and Asian black descent experience race. He is also a spoken word hip-hop artist who has released two albums with poetry, hip-hop pieces that cover his experiences, and as a father, husband, son, professor, and mentor. And something that's a little bit different about this episode from Normal Ones is that I've actually known Bruce since high school. We have not stayed in touch too closely as much as Facebook would afford. It has been many, many moons since we've ever had a conversation together. And I contacted him about being on the podcast. I listened to some of his spoken word poetry, and I watched his videos on his YouTube channel of his strange fruit sociology show, and really got intrigued by the idea of having him come on the show to have a conversation about racial identity. Though I thought it might be interesting, rather than to speak about it from a hypothetical thing, to do somewhat of an ethnographic approach for each of us as we thought back to our younger years when we did know each other and were in social circles with one another and how we experienced our own racial identities forming. So a little bit of a different episode You're going to hear some things about each of us that would normally maybe not come up on conversations like this, but each of us really believes in the power of these healing conversations about racial identity. So please join me in welcoming Bruce Hoskins to the show. Bruce, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hey, how are you doing, Bonnie? It has been a long time. (laughs) It has been a long time. Mm Indeed. Yeah. When you contacted me, I was really like, this is Bonnie. Uh, well, crazy. Your maiden name is yeah. so you know with the with the name change. I was just like, no, this is definitely the same Bonnie. It definitely looks like her. But man, it's been what twenty five over twenty five years for crying out loud that we've that we've interacted with each other. So awesome. Besides being friends on Facebook and everything, I was really looking forward to hearing from you. And not only did you ha- have that sort of difficult to pronounce last name, but you knew it was love when you saw the new last name. 
being so difficult to spell and pronounce. So you're like, she must really love that man. She married into that last name. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like, look, I didn't even try. You know who I didn't even try to say yeah. the last name? I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that. Buddy, hey. Well, I really appreciate you not just coming on the show because lots of people come on the show and it's a great way to promote textbooks and to promote people's work. But you and I are going to embark on a difficult conversation for both of us. And I just thank you for your courage and your trust in me because we are two very different people who are going to talk about race today. Indeed. I'm looking forward to it. So why don't we start out with what are some of your earliest memories of even knowing what race was? You know, the, the, the earliest memory that I have that was vividly and clearly about race was actually in my senior year of high school. You know, uh, there's things that I've thought about before that I know were racial to say that I know that in, in retrospect, they were oriented around my race. However, I didn't have proof that it was about my race mm. uh, necessarily. And so there's a lot of things that I've unpacked uh, for myself um, uh, later on to say, wow, this, this probably has something to do with race, but it wasn't clearly and definitively racist. But in my senior year of high school, I dated a young white woman and her father secretly dated her because her father was, um, let's just, I, I don't know what, how else to say it, was uh, a white supremacist, definitely had negative attitudes towards black people specifically. And so we dated secretly. I honestly, I didn't know a whole bunch about her father at the, at the time. She just said, you know, you know, just, just kind of keep this on the on the down low. And I'm like, well, I'm fine. I don't need to meet your parents or, or whatnot. But I remember this day. It was it was almost. I mean, it feels like it was yesterday. Where uh, she comes to school crying and tells me that she has to break up with me. And I'm like, did I do something wrong? What's going on? And she said, well, my father found out that I'm dating a black guy and he beat me, literally beat her up over this. Some, somebody, an, an anonymous phone caller. I'm not even kidding about this. I can't make this stuff up. An anonymous phone caller left a message um, on their answering machine and told, uh, told the father or told the family anyway that his daughter was dating a black man. And like I said, he physically abused her uh, for that and she wound up breaking up with me as a result of it we we were so young and foolish though that you know like about a month or so later uh, we wound up you know reconnecting and, and getting back together and later on her father even met me didn't say a whole bunch to me but for whatever reasons uh, allowed us to to date the second time around but, you know, that was obviously and tragically uh, a racist moment in my life that I remember very, very clearly. Like I said, most other things were, were very racial, but, but that one was my first clear memory of being treated in a, in a negative way. Another thing, or well, you asked me just for my first, but I, oh, I yeah. have another one. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you do. Please, please share. And yeah, and so Bonnie, this was the one that I, you know, uh, that I warned you about because that, you know, th this is something that when when I went through it, I didn't necessarily understand that it was racial. I just uh, or that it was racist. I just knew how bad I felt afterwards. And this is something that I really encourage people, and especially like my students, since I teach at a community college, that there's a lot of things that you feel bad about, and then you wind up later on finding out that. 
the reason why you felt so bad actually has a name. And I found out later on that the, the name of that was, was racism and stereotypes and, and things like that. But when I was at El Camino, I was, I was quite the spirit guy. I was, I, I, I was a Mr. Spirit, Wildcat Spirit Club. I was president of Wildcat Spirit Club and all of this stuff and really had a good time at, at, uh, at El Camino and really, you know, I was a two-sport athlete, played for, uh, football all four years, did track and field for two years, did basketball for two years. And so I was really out there, you know, doing my thing. And people knew me and they knew I had a good sense of humor and all of this. And so I was invited. Um, this is where the cringing starts because we're class of 89. <laughs> I'll at least, uh, anyway, I don't know what class you were, Bonnie. I know, 89. I know what class you, were, if you don't want to tell it. You don't want to tell anybody <laughs> your age. But I'll 89. tell people mine class of 89 and so you know just to give people the the space of where we're at in time and and you know what what's going on in society and whatnot but we had a big pep rally and i was asked to do a watermelon eating contest and i still to this day don't know why i said yes um except for the fact that i love watermelon and wasn't even thinking about that this is in any way shape or form like racist that wasn't the first thing that jumped into my mind but then when I did the contest, it wasn't really even a contest. What they were doing is they were, they were actually playing a practical joke on me. And what they did is they blindfolded me, gave me the watermelon, blindfolded me. And then they said, go. And the thing is, there was no one else eating watermelon. It was only me in the center of the gym eating watermelon. And everybody's around me shouting and all of this stuff, eating. And I'm, you know, eating as fast as I can because of the contest. And after I'm done eating, they take off the blindfold and I look around and I'm, I realize that I'm the only person that, that's there. I feel really weird about that. I even have friends that are looking at me trying to figure out and engage my reaction to this. And I felt weird about it, but I, I didn't know what to call this. I just felt weird, kind of felt bad, but whatever. I go to wash my face off. I come back and, you know, the kind of the moment is done and everything, but the thing that really actually solidified that this was racist, though, was that later on, one of the officers in the ASB, they come up to me with the advisor of the ASB, and they were like, hey, Bruce, we were going to give this to you in the, in the middle of the, of the pep rally, but, you know, you walked out and we kind of lost our moment. But there was a prize associated with winning the watermelon eating contest, and the, the ASB officer hands me these big wax lips. And... That's when I really felt bad, but again, I still didn't quite know what that was. Later on in my life, you know, I, I figured out that this was all connected to racial stereotypes and everything, but those are two like really pivotal memories that I have about race and my identity as I was coming up and being born and raised in Oceanside which is a very racially diverse city and it's also economically very diverse also. But I never really had to think about it a whole bunch before these moments. But I really started realizing at about that time that my racial reality was actually shifting on me. Because, you know, when I was a kid, I really didn't think about it a whole bunch. But as I got older, got into high school, it, it definitely started becoming part of my identity or people were identifying me as black. And so therefore I, I needed to do something with that. And so those were two of the moments uh, that really stand out to me when I was growing up in Oceanside about how I learned about not only about race, but what race I was. One of the things that you didn't share about the watermelon eating contest 
story is that I was there and you remember me being there. I mentioned as you were sharing the story earlier that I have absolutely no memory of this. I have no no recollection of this kind of a contest, although certainly thinking back to high school and junior high, I mean, kids can be really cruel. I, I, don't, I don't even find, I know why that would be funny to blindfold someone and to have them eat anything, regardless of the color of their skin. Like, this is not a, this yeah. doesn't fit with my sense of humor, but I guess it both makes me horrified when we have a lack of leadership of teachers in there to help mold and form students to think more critically about racial identity. And then, I mean, so that sort of breaks my heart. And I, mean, I told you I'm embarrassed that I was any part of it. I, I think you said I was on the ASB. It doesn't surprise me that I was, but I don't have any recollection of actually being on ASB. But uh, I, right. I, I told you I have terrible memories as far as that. But I do have a couple of memories I wanted to share that about sort of my own sense of racial identity. And they're, they're sort of stereotypical, but in this case, they're true. So that would be, right. I remember growing up that my mom modeled for me perhaps um, clumsily and, and maybe not for the long-term best, but that you never refer to someone by the color of their skin. So you don't go to the mm. grocery store and say, oh, that, you know, go get the cart from the black guy over there. You would never, never, I can't, I'm cringing even just saying that to you now and I'm 46 years old, <laughs> but that, that was completely not allowed. You refer to people with the color of shirt that they're wearing. And that yeah. seems good, at first, doesn't that seem great? Then we're we're all just a rainbow of colors, and and you know, I don't see race. I you know, and and I think one of the things that I have learned is that no, we do see race, and in yeah. in fact, yeah. in the times when we are temporarily blinded by it, in that I know positively, growing up, I would have had no recollection that watermelon had anything of a racial slur to it. I would not have known that. But yeah. me not talking about race, not hearing about people's anger and hearing about hatred did not help right. me then be as equipped as I might have liked to have been to have an influence in positions when I was in teaching roles and, and mentoring roles and that kind of thing. Is that I think that one of the reasons I'm so glad we're having this conversation is is that this is how healing happens, not by pretending that it's not there. So one thing I remember yeah. is we weren't supposed to talk about people's race. And then the other memory I had, I wasn't even going to share it, but you sort of encouraged me to a little bit is, I mean, this is so lame, but I used to be made fun of all the time because I'm so pale. And all the time, if I was ever going to wear shorts, I knew I was going to have somebody make fun of how white my legs are. And then in one of the dances, they awarded a king and queen of the snowball dance. <laughs> and I was awarded the queen. And then an African-American man was awarded the king. And I knew him and he was a really kind young man. And I really liked him. So it was that was a nice thing to be paired up with someone I considered to be so kind. But we were right. both made fun of. And not just yeah. on the night of the dance, they called us salt and pepper, which if you haven't heard salt and pepper, you should go back and revisit that from the 80s because they had some pretty <laughs> good music. So if you don't know salt and pepper, that was a band at the time, a group. I don't think they're still around. Yeah. Is that is that a fair assumption? <laughs> They've gone the way. So. Uh, well, I, you know what? Honestly, I just got finished probably about six months ago. We actually went and saw an old school hip hop <laughs> show awesome. and they were actually in it and so uh, oh they're not producing gosh. any new music but they're still performing they're sure they surely are still performing that's awesome so they called us salt and pepper <laughs> and that was certainly racially i mean that's all wound up in race and then 
it, it kept going because then when the yearbook came out, they kept making fun of us, but you couldn't get the picture to look right. That yeah. I was either going to be the color of paper or he was <laughs> going to be <laughs> too dark skin. And it, and I just remember being embarrassed and embarrassed and embarrassed. And, and But yet at the same time, I hesitate to tell that story because that is not the same thing as racism. That's yeah. not the same thing. Yeah. Kids make fun of kids and right. a lot of it has to do with your appearance. And sometimes your ears are too big or your eyes are too small or whatever, whatever the thing is. But that is not the same thing to institutional racism. So I guess I bring it up just for people <laughs> who are not a person of color to not be thinking, oh, I know exactly what you mean. You know what? When I was young, I had this happen. No, no, no. That is not the same thing as right, um, right. institutional racism. So I guess, I guess there you go. Yeah. And, you know, I really want to make sure that your audience understands what we're really doing here, because you and I, although we weren't, you know, at any time like best friends or anything, but we definitely respect each other and, and knew each other and interact with each other a lot back in the day. And I was wondering where you wanted to jump in on. Bonnie was actually the, the ASB officer that gave me the wax lips with the advisor next to her and, you know, said this was going to be your prize. But I understand why for you that this wasn't a moment to even remember for you. But for me, it was actually the foundation of where I would understand race and understand my place in a racial, you know, in a, in a racial hierarchy where black is at the bottom and white is at the top. You know, and so we need to have honest conversations about this and we all need to sit in, as you said earlier, uh, sit in our anger that we were talking about this later on, but you know, we all need to sit in our anger, our pain, our hurt and listen to other people's stories and own the spaces that we were at. But, you know, but also understand that we're not that person anymore because we've continued to grow and develop and, and stay honest and to, and to have these conversations. Like I said, I just wanted to, to, to let your audience know it's like, this is a very real authentic conversation that we're having and and um and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna heal this is gonna this is gonna help us heal and 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 be better not only as teachers but as as people in your story one of the things that starts to emerge for me is that i'm hearing you tell the story and yes there are people but there's also institutional racism which just requires so much more than individual healing Absolutely. We all have to be resisting. We all have to be in the fight. And that means just continually being woken up to our own inadequacies. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about standpoint theory and how that informs some of your thinking about racism, because I think there's sort of a way we might fit that fit that in here, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, you know, it's that, so standpoint theory, I, I know other disciplines use it, but for, uh, for us as sociologists, we just talk about how, how where you stand, where your experiences lie, and, and your, you know, the places of privileges and the places where you're not privileged, that those inform how you interact with folks, you know, and how you shape your reality and how you interact with, with institutions and what your perception is of those institutions. And so standpoint there, let me, let me give you a, a very real example that I used actually in my, in my textbook. It's just later on, I didn't share that chapter with you, but where I talked about where it was a strange food sociology video where my co-host and I, we talked about how, when the Michael Brown verdict went down, this is, uh, I think is like what, about two, three years ago now, mm -hmm. uh, when the Michael Brown verdict went down, this was about Thanksgiving time. 
right? It was like, it was right there around Thanksgiving. I remember that vividly. And the reason why I remember it so vividly is because when the grand jury decided not to indict the police officers involved in the Michael Brown shooting, I remember my black friends and, uh, and other friends who were social justice oriented, but black people specifically really talking and really engaging in regards to, yo, this just happened. This is real. How do we deal with this? What are we going to do? Where's the march? Where's the protest? What, what, are, what are communities doing? What's the, you know, creating action plans and stuff like that and, and really going in? While the vast majority of my white friends, we're talking about Thanksgiving recipes, mm-hmm. how they're going to go and, and visit their, their, their families and, and, you know, oh my God, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take a nap after eating the turkey because of fan and all of this stuff. It's like, when I saw that, I, it was, it was just so real. And so, I mean, and for me, I'm actually getting a little emotional about that right now. It's just, is that was such a, a stark contrast and such a vivid image of, of the literally the different world that I live in versus a person who being white is no fault of, the, of, of white person. Right. But this idea, this construction of whiteness, this is, that's what I prefer to talk about because saying white supremacy just really scares the hell out of people. And mm-hmm. then they get a very false image of what a white supremacist is. I remember um, an episode that you were talking about, I think it's Steven, I don't know what his last name is, but talking about when you hear the word white supremacist, you think of the KKK, you think of the hood, you think of burning crosses. But it's like, I, I try to stay away from that and try to just talk about whiteness as an as a, as a institutional const- construct and how we're taught to favor it. We're taught to believe in it. We're taught to trust in it. Uh, we're taught to give it the benefit of the doubt when it's doing something wrong. And so this social construction of whiteness is, is, is so real that it can cause a very different lived reality uh, for people on a day-to-day basis versus the people that it's not constructed for, the people that it's, that it's set against. But like I said, that, that Thanksgiving, I'll never forget it. And I don't want to make anybody feel guilty for talking about Thanksgiving because that's what you're supposed to talk about. That's, that's what regular people are supposed to talk about during that time of the year. But for me, at that moment, it wasn't even about Thanksgiving. It was about the police officer that was responsible for Michael, Brown, or Michael Brown's death was not indicted. But I, I really want to make sure that people really understand the problem is not necessarily the person. Police officers are not the problem, mm-hmm. but, right? It's like the, there's, a, there's a person in that uniform, right? The problem is the institutional behavior of the police, not necessarily individual. It's like the, the, what the institution trains and teaches people to do, that's what it's doing. But that's what people wind up doing. And the, the challenge that we're all having is that people are not necessarily the problem is what people are taught, I would argue, is the problem. And so when you see a police officer wrongfully kill someone, then you just say, okay, that's just a bad police officer. That's an argument that I hear from a lot of the conservative spaces and from students who tend to, to lean a little bit more on the conservative side. And I completely respect that argument. It's like, look, I get it that they might very well be a bad officer or just a bad person in general who just happens to be wearing a police uniform, but you cannot create, and this is where the sociology comes in, this is where data and research comes in, you can't create the patterns, the statistically demonstrable patterns 
of the rate at which black people are more likely to die um, at the, the hands of police officers, you can't, can't create that pattern by explaining just one bad apple in the bunch. And so I'm pointing more towards the institution itself and what it was founded on, the training that happens in that space. When I was doing research in this, um, I found out that there, literally there's some police departments that require less training than what you would need to become a, a hairstylist or a barber. Mm-hmm. I'm not even kidding. I'm not joking about that. And my jaw dropped to the ground when I read that. And just that police officers, that their job is so difficult. And I really appreciate the people who are volunteering themselves and the potentially their lives to this work. I really appreciate them. I just, I, at me as a scholar, as a black man, as a social justice advocate, I really just, I really question how the institution prepares them for their job. That's the thing that I see as, as a far bigger problem than necessarily the motivations, uh, you know, the motivations of people. And so if we want to create different behavior, then we have to change the behavior at the institutional level rather than change it on an individual level. You talked earlier about sitting with others' anger and the importance of being able to do that. And for my recommendation, I wanted to recommend your YouTube channel and some of your spoken word poetry. I'm watching the clock as far as this episode, and we're probably too long to actually play one now, but I'll put a link to some of the ones that were particularly profound to me in preparing for this episode and also, of course, to the main channels to encourage people to listen We'll have links aplenty mm-hmm. in this episode too, also over to your w- website because people can purchase your spoken word poetry there too. So I'll, I'll link to a lot of, of the resources. But I, I guess my recommendation, instead of just to go watch your videos, would be to prepare to sit with another's anger in a relatively safe way. <laughs> so if this is hard to do, <laughs> then it's not like Bruce is actually there. He's not actually talking to you specifically, although it'll feel like he is this he's so powerful in his delivery. But I think that's a good preparation for us to just be continually preparing ourselves to I mean, I could go this I could go on and on about it's not even just about race and ethnicity. But you were saying, Bruce, that you've been thinking a lot just about life and death and some of your poetry comes out and just some some of that that would be maybe pretty deep for some people to go and watch. And I'm saying, no, this is, we have to do that because so much in our society, we've socialized ourselves to not grieve and not mourn and try to fix people. And I know you and I share a faith background too. And sometimes the people of faith are the worst where they're like, don't feel bad. At least he's with Jesus now. This is not helping. You are not helping. (laughs) So at any rate, I'm going to recommend people go listen to your, your, magnificent, powerful, gut-wrenching spoken word poetry. And I'm going to put some links in the show notes and pass it over to you to make your recommendations. You know, and to stay on the spoken word poetry vein, uh, and thank you for the kind words. I really, I really appreciate that. It's spoken word poetry is something very different for me than than I think it is for a lot of folks that I I definitely deal with uh, the emotional content of life. While the person I'm recommending, his name is Anthony Blackshear, professor or Professor Anthony Blackshear, or his stage name is Ant Black. And so you go to YouTube and you uh, type in Ant Black and spoken word poetry, all of his work will come up. And he's my co-host on Strange Food Sociology. We're, we're paused right now. He is actually finishing up his dissertation right now. He should be done in, in uh, December-ish, uh, we're hoping. 
And when he's done, we're, we're planning on continuing our Strange Food sociology videos. But he is a magnificent person, friend, and quite the accomplished spoken word uh, poet. And he definitely uh, deals a lot more with uh, social justice issues than I do. I have a few social justice pieces. He is way more in, in tune with that space. And that's where he writes a lot of his poetry. But to just call him, you know, a social justice poet is, is definitely, uh, that's too limiting. Uh, he talks about a lot of stuff. But he is my mentor. He is my sensei in spoken word poetry. Mm-hmm. Although he is younger than me, he's the one that taught me to be the poet that I am. I'm his mentor when it comes to teaching. <laughs> but he is, he is surely my mentor um, and taught me everything that I know about spoken word poetry. And I just love that guy. And uh, if you if you click on one poem, you're you're gonna you're gonna wind up binge watching. And so prepare yourself. Don't just think <laughs> that you're gonna spend five minutes watching a poem or whatever. You're gonna you're gonna spend a good you know hour or so just watching and seeing everything that's related to him. Uh, he's absolutely amazing. He's taught me everything that I know about spoken word poetry. Bruce, this has truly been a, a, just a really thing I'm going to treasure being reconnected with you like this. And I'll admit to not really enjoying reconnecting with people from high school in general. I mentioned not having a good memory for a lot of that part of my life, but also just my gosh, surface conversation is just like abundant in in those. Yeah. I would not go to a reunion. I have no interest in just surface that kind of thing. And I'm just so glad we got reconnected in this really unique way and that we each were willing to be vulnerable enough to have not just the conversation we just recorded, but the one that we didn't record (laughs) before that where (laughs) we were talking a little bit and preparing for this episode. So thank you so much. And and like you said, before we started the episode, I, I hope this is you know, you'll come back on the show, but I hope that outside of that, that we can just actually hang out and and have more of these conversations and and not talk about what we had for lunch and what the weather is outside and how we live in a rainbow world of unicorns and and clouds. (laughs) But there's tough stuff going on and we got to do the work. Absolutely. This is definitely the one of the most meaningful reconnections that I got from from my high school folks. And so I, I applaud the work that you're doing and and yet know that although we're doing good work, we, we there's a lot more work to do, but this is definitely walking us in the right direction. I really appreciate you for that. As some of you might know, we have a editor for our podcast. My husband and I do. His name is Andrew. And sometimes when Andrew is editing the episodes, he'll send me a note and explain why he took something out of the episode. And occasionally it'll be that he doesn't think that the listeners want to know how the sausage gets made as he says it, which always makes me chuckle. And in this particular case, I want to tell you a little bit about how the sausage gets made, or in this case, how this episode came about, and share some of my reflections on being reconnected with Bruce in this way. I was first reconnected with Bruce on Facebook. I can't tell you exactly when it was, but I remember being really intrigued by the fact that he was also a professor like me and also being interested in his spoken word poetry and his sociology videos. And I just thought that he would be the kind of person I would really want to talk with and reconnect and talk about our teaching. He has such a big heart for his students and started to get the idea that it would be fun to have him on the podcast. And we kind of went back and forth a little bit over some months and finally decided that this was the season when we were going to make it happen. 
And when we started, we went back and forth a little bit over email as to what the subject might be. I know he has a big passion for his textbook and what he's been able to do with that. And I was attempting to find a little bit more of a broader theme beyond sociology too, just to extend that to other disciplines. And so when we connected on the call for the actual podcast recording, I pitched the idea that we might each just talk about, since we did grow up together, I mean, not we didn't grow up together like, I don't, I don't remember if it was just high school or if it was before that, but that we would have grown up in similar cities and in similar places and had at least gone to the same high school and that it might be interesting to weave together our own experiences of race growing up because we have had people of color before on the show share that as many of you I know have listened and we have also had Stephen Brookfield, who is a white male, talk about his experiences. And Bruce actually listened to Stephen Brookfield's episode and really liked what he had to say about race and white privilege. And so that was kind of my vision for the episode. And what I thought would happen was that we would have almost like a theoretical conversation that, oh, well, isn't that interesting? We went to the same high school, but but that was sort of where it began and end. And Bruce stopped me and said, I would be happy to share those kinds of stories, but you should know that you're in one of my stories. And I was completely taken aback and hearing him recount this contest that was put on, I was just completely horrified, candidly. We talked for an hour and it was so, I just felt so honored that he would share with me that raw of a story for him. And then also just felt terrible. I think that contest was completely mean spirited, even if there were no racial overtones in it, what a terrible thing it would be to play a joke on someone who thinks they're in a contest, but no, they're not actually in a contest. And it's sort of to humiliate someone. I just thought it was really mean spirited. I have no memory of being in student government in general when I was in high school, nor do I have any recall of this particular event. And a couple people that I've shared that story with, they've assumed that it meant that it didn't really happen, that perhaps Bruce remembered the story wrong. And that's not at all how I see it. I assume that the reason I don't remember it is because of my white privilege that this is an event that would not have been memorable to me in the sense that it wasn't a pivotal moment in my life for the way that it was for him. And I'm going to admit that I do have that urge of, gosh, just couldn't this episode get lost in the mail on the way to the podcasting platform so I could look like the good white person who's never done anything like that. And it was really hard to hear that about myself that I was involved in any way with this, even though it was 20 plus years ago. I've been really impacted by Stephen Brookfield's writing on race. He's done that in a number of his books, but the most recent one that I read is Becoming a Critically Reflective Teacher. And in that he shares, it's very clear that far from having no racist bone in my body, my skeletal framework has racism as its bone marrow. I learned stereotypes and biases through jokes with peers, family conversations, and media images that flourished in the vacuum of no contact with anyone other than whites like myself. 
and that's a closed quote there. I'm now back to be me talking. I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses, but as I reflect on what Stephen has said so much in his writing, I would have had no idea that there were any racial stereotypes having to do with watermelons at that age. And it's strange to think about, but just how we can be taught these things through, as he says, peers, family conversations, and media images, and not be aware of it, and that it's in our veins, it's in our hearts, it's in our minds, without us always being aware of it. And that doesn't make it okay. To me, what it means is, is that racism is systemic, not only inside of individuals like me who can be cured and forever healed. This is back to Stephen, quoting Stephen Brookfield in another part of Becoming a Critically Reflective Teacher. Quote, for whites to hear students or colleagues of color describe their experience of racism with all the pain and anger that involves what is theorists of transformative learning call a disorienting dilemma. This is particularly the case if the situation being described is one in which you've participated or eerily close to one you're experiencing. This episode we recorded way, way, way before it's going to air, and it's been really hard on me reflecting on my conversation with Bruce. And I did want listeners to know that I apologized to him for that incident that I didn't have a recollection of, and that we really had a very moving conversation of just both wanting to connect on healing of our society and how much a treasure it is when people different from one another can come together and and be raw and real like that. And since the recording didn't seem, I don't remember that it captured as much of my apology to him as I would have liked. I just wanted to make sure that people knew how seriously I took that and just how devastated I am that I was any part of that. And I wanted to express my own continued desire to heal and yet at the same time know that without conversations like the one I had with Bruce, without continuing to put myself into situations like that, I will never be able to be where I want to be. And this is my final quote from Stephen Brookfield's Becoming a Critically Reflective Teacher. Quote, but becoming critically reflective is hard work, a long incremental haul. In the struggle to do this, teachers run political and professional risks and exercise personal demons. Thank you, Bruce, for being on the show. Thank you for sharing a painful story with me and opening up your life and your stories to me and to everyone who listens to teaching in higher ed. And thanks to all of you for listening and opening yourselves up to considering issues of race and ethnicity in our teaching. I look forward to having him on future shows and to contributing even more to these important conversations and also to hearing about what goes on as he releases his textbook that he's in the middle of writing and all the other things I know will be happening as we continue our conversation. So thanks, Bruce, for being on today's show. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to read the show notes and, and experience some of the links from this show, especially go check out his spoken word poetry and his recommendation of Aunt Black's spoken word poetry. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 166. Or if you'd like to have those show up in your inbox without having to remember to go and check, 
you can always subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And we have a little bit more private conversations that happen on our Slack channel if you have an interest in not as open a public of a conversation as Twitter affords us. You can learn more about the Slack channel by going to teachinginhighered.com slash Slack. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.